Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm your host, Andy Bowell. And I'm your other host, Alex Ruiz. And as always, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. And Andy, I was just telling you before we started recording that I am currently, uh, on this day of recording, starved for human interaction. (laughs) So. I am very happy that you were willing to, on fairly short notice, sit down and do this recording with me because, holy shit, I've been cooped up in my apartment for too long. Yeah, you have a snow day. Was that correct? I do. We got like six-ish inches over the last two days. Work was canceled for me. It was good enough this afternoon that I was able to venture out, so I like I went to the gym and then... I got a flu shot, and having uh, the most adorable lesbian pharmacist of all times prick me with a needle (laughs) uh, is the extent of human interaction I have had in the last 36 hours, because Stephanie is away at a conference, and I'm a little stir-crazy. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people pay for worse treatment than when you got, so glass half full. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, not my kink, Andy. Not my kink. Well, I'm I'm very excited to be recording with you today and doing our triple, triple, but there's no third, our triple love special on David Bowie. It's triple in that it's, we normally do three segments and all of our segments are going to be one topic. Yes. So, and if anyone is upset that we don't have triple hosts on top of triple segments, it's our podcast. So, eh? pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm gonna. Before we get into it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I've started listening to another podcast called "Who's That Pokemon," Ooh. where no, it's not very good at all. Uh, but I can't stop listening to it. It's a couple of UCB performers, and they're going through each Pokemon and doing a minimum hour-long episode on each Pokemon in the Pokedex. Oh. Yeah. So it's a weekly podcast. At this point, they just did Sandshrew. They just did number 26. And dear God, it is, like, I'm not kidding you. They do an episode on Bulbasaur, an episode on Ivysaur, an episode on Venusaur, an episode on Charmander, an episode on Charmeleon. They don't group these together at all. They do a full hour on each and every one. It's not good, but I can't stop listening to it. But the reason I bring it up is because a running gag on that podcast is they chant to their listeners, unsubscribe, 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 <laughs> on like every fourth episode. Like they just, it's just a thing that they do because they apparently want to sabotage themselves. I don't know. But you, you just made me think of that with this, with our attitude towards anyone who has a problem with how we do our triple loves well we've said it before if you don't like it go make your own damn podcast (laughs) yeah no it's it's a saturated market we know i've seen the numbers (laughs) i do uh i like their uh i like their pure hubris and daring asking people to unsubscribe so so i have to know now you said ucb is it improv based and they try to like riff and make up sketches or what do they do with the pokemon a little of that has happened they do segments um for instance there's a part where they one of them regularly will just play piano throughout the whole thing so they'll make up songs they'll make up raps they will do random ass like just off of the top of their head variations on a theme kind of stuff they'll read pokedex entries from bulbapedia 
they will try and imagine weird scenarios uh, that these Pokemon are in. It's it's like the the Arbok section. Uh, apparently, there was a Pokedex entry where it was like. The design on Arbuck's front, uh, for anyone who's not a Pokemon fan, this is a Pokemon that's a Cobra. Y'all can skip ahead to, like, the part where we actually start talking about the topic. Hey, future Andy here. That is the seven-minute mark. Bye. But Arbuck's a Cobra Pokemon, and there's a Pokedex entry where it's, like, over 20 variations of the design exist. And so they just start riffing on what this design probably looks like, and they're like... It looks like a Poliwhirl swirl. It looks like a mosaic of John Lithgow. It looks <laughs> like Starry Night. <laughs> okay. I can I so, can see the addiction, though. They're playing with fire if they think they're going to make anything more hot than the Pokemon rap. Uh, I want to be the best there ever was. To beat all the rest. Yeah, no, they're they're not trying that hard. They're just like, we have committed to this ridiculous premise of doing... I mean, how many Pokemon are there now, Andy? 700-something? Yeah, well over 700. Yeah. yeah, they are committed to doing every one of them for an hour's episode. It's going to take them, and they do it once a week, so it's going to take them three years just to get through Gen 1. I love the spirit. I really do. <laughs> It's truly ridiculous. So um, uh, now that we've rambled for five minutes about another podcast. Well, well, uh, let me I don't know when else I'm ever going to get a chance to tell this story. Uh, back oh, in dear. college, when I was in an improv troupe, there was at one point where the UCF improv team made an hour long sketch show that I'm pretty sure was entirely improv Pokemon based. Um, and one of the. The the sketch that stuck out the most in my mind, and I like I'll, I'll just go ahead and say this is pretty dark but pretty funny, was they set up this notion that Mister Mime was actually like a human being that as a child got left in the forest by his mother and he has a speech impediment, so like the story goes his mom his mom like left him in the forest and as he's walking away the the kid is calling out Mithy mom she goes yeah yeah mr mime Mithy mom <laughs> and jesus christ andrew <laughs> richard hey don't blame me blame uh blame the uh don't snitch on your improv people don't snitch don't yeah. give names <laughs> i was actually going to try to link them but then again, I did just bring up something incredibly dark and disturbing, so maybe it's not for everybody. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Today, we are talking exclusively about one of the true legends of the music industry, but also just 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 a, a, a titan of pop culture for the last half of a decade. We're talking about the one and only David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited. You know, we, speaking of random segues to other questions, the, the reason this episode came to be is you coaxed out like a 10 minute rant about my feelings on David Bowie back, way back in our uh, Bojack J.R.R. Martin episode. And mm-hmm. I realized after that that the man really had to be included on the show pretty soon 
if we did the math right, this episode is actually dropping on January 16th, 2019. And mm-hmm. that was intentional. Uh, as the episode closest we could get to the date of not only his birthday, which is also my birthday, January 8th, uh, but also the closest to the, I want to say, two-year anniversary of the man's death, which was January 7th, or uh, January 10th. Okay. Uh, correction, this should drop January 15th. Oh, okay, there you go. That's that's a, that's a the second Tuesday of January. Even better. Okay, so a little... Uh, I, I will I will say up front to everyone out there, I am a David Bowie fan. I have, I'm pretty sure I've listened to his entire discography through at least once. I definitely have some favorites over others. Uh, and I always would get excited if I'd see him pop up into a movie or referenced in other stuff. I don't think I'm quite the fan you are, Andy, but I do love David Bowie. So I I am intrigued here to treat this as... Fan versus super fan, and definitely because because we both definitely do have a love for David Bowie. I think I might be a little harder on him than you are. Sure. Um, and and that'll come up in the discussion. We we actually have a very interesting segment of that, I think, planned out, uh, which I'll be intrigued to hear what you've written about because you have not shared that particular part with me. Uh, we'll get to that. But uh, should we start with some you know background info on David Bowie? Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know or doesn't know the hard details, let's give, you know, a a bio of the man. David Bowie, a.k.a. David Robert Jones, which was his actual name, was Mm -hmm. born January 8th, 1947 in Brixton, England. And he, uh, he had a fairly typical childhood, I would say. He was very into, uh, music and art and didn't do anything too crazy to precursor the musical genius art prodigy that he would be with one exception that I know is something you wanted to talk about. Okay. So David Bowie was exceedingly talented, like by all reports as a child, he was exceedingly talented uh, in, in the arts in general. He was heavily involved with music, dance, theater. He had uh, movement and dance instructors uh, from an early age who commented that he had this like really raw talent for dance in general. He picked up multiple instruments at a fairly young age. He was a weirdly accomplished recorder player. Uh, there's a fun fact. David <laughs> Bowie's like was real good at recorder, but he was also he was also a bassist. He also dabbled with the drums. He played a number of different instruments, but and he had a talent for visual art. He would actually ultimately go to technical high school uh, to study graphic design, typography, and visual art uh, before he kind of decided that he was going to pursue music full-time. Before we move on from David Bowie's childhood into his adulthood, one thing that I do want to talk about, uh, anyone who's a David Bowie fan, or at least familiar with a lot of his iconography and a lot of the images of him, you got to talk about the eyeball. David Bowie's got one eye that was kind of fucked up. And uh, a fun story there is that that... (laughs) That fucked up eyeball came from a schoolyard brawl 
with artist and musician George, well, future artist and musician George Underwood. <laughs> uh, they were st- what? I'm sorry. It's just like that. That's such an important clarifier. Now that you've added the yeah, clarifier, yeah, that- I'm imagining schoolyard schoolboy David Bowie getting into a fight with adult uh, musician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. They were school friends. Um, they were roughly the same age. They were apparently arguing over a girl. But in the scuffle, George Underwood punched David Bowie's eyeball so hard uh, that he was hospitalized for four months and had to undergo multiple surgeries. By the end of it, he his eyeball was his eye was permanently damaged. Uh, the pupil was permanently dilated, and his depth perception was affected for the rest of his life. Uh, funny enough, he and George Underwood, after this, they stayed friendly. Like, they got over it, they forgave each other, and, you know, George Underwood designed some of those early David Bowie album covers. They were just good friends, but that weird eyeball that was such characteristically important piece of David Bowie's image, you know, that was because he got into a fight over a girl with a friend of his who stayed his friend. And for some reason, I find that story incredibly charming. I, I love that. <laughs> I'm glad you love it. I, I think it's a great story, too. And, and yeah, the eye really is so iconic. Um, I've been meaning pretty much since his death uh, to get a tattoo on my forearm. And I want David Bowie's eyes, the blue one and the yellow uh, messed up pupil one, on my forearm with the lyrics, uh, turn and face the strange. So... I think the eye made him unique, which he didn't need any help with. You know, we're going to very quickly get into his performing and his visual performance art persona, but David Bowie didn't need any help standing out visually, and yet having a physical distinction like that, that wasn't just a costume or makeup or something. It, it did help give him sort of a mystique and an edge, and it was, it was really cool. And there are people who might think of that and just kind of be like, well, you know, who cares that he had a messed up eyeball? Like, what does that actually matter? But if you're at all interested in, you know, iconography and personal image, in a lot of how this stuff makes people famous, you know, there there was a reason why, you know, the little Marilyn Monroe mole is so iconic, why there are... Those kinds of weird visual distinctions in in a lot of artists are the kind of thing that make visual icons. And for all of the iconography that David Bowie used throughout his career, having that trademark, I think, did a lot more for embedding his image in people's minds than a lot of people will give credit for. Yeah, totally. So... I wanted to start on that because I wanted to make sure that got mentioned. Yeah. Do you want to get into uh, some, you know, liner, some filler notes on his career? Yeah. So like we said, Bowie was pretty much a student in all of the arts. But in 1967, he made a decision that he wanted to be a musician. He wanted to, he actually wanted to be a songwriter and he's gone on quote saying that no one else would sing his songs, so he had to be the one to do it. Uh, but nonetheless, in 1967, David Bowie came out with his first album, and within uh, the next couple of years, started to really pick up in the English rock scene 
Um, he started in his very first album. You can look; it's just a picture of him on the album cover, and he looks like a beetle. <laughs> he looks yeah. very he looks very clean. He's got the 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 bowl cut hair, and he's just sort of looking at the camera. And you yeah. know, he he started out mellow with his visual persona, but very quickly expanded and let his visual art background influence his look. And even within just a couple of years, he was wearing extensive makeup, wearing these uh, beautiful elaborate costumes and really um, changing rock and roll as we know it. And I'm not being hyperbolic. David Bowie is on record as the inventor of glam rock. And the idea of doing your hair crazy, putting on mascara and makeup, and and going out and just looking like this beautiful, insane god. That was Bowie who started doing that. You can look up on uh, YouTube. I think the image that solidifies what I'm talking about is if you look up uh, David Bowie's performance of the song Queen Bitch on the old gray penny whistle test he's out there with like gold white makeup this insane kimono looking thing and a like a bright blue guitar just jamming out rocking out looking like nothing that rock and roll had seen at the time and this this is what helped him blow up and become Ziggy Stardust has turned himself into a bizarre self-constructed freak now for context so the first thing that Bowie comes out with that could be considered something of a hit and honestly it was kind of a minor hit at the time was uh, Space Oddity that was that came out in 69 uh, and you can actually see like performances of his from 69 and 70 where he you know he'd come out on the tv shows and i think it was like i think it's a smothers brothers performance maybe but he comes out and does space oddity and it's just him with the acoustic guitar and they do the lighting effects for all the pre-recorded weird sound effect bits but you know space oddity is at its core it's like experimental folk at the time And he comes out wearing, you know, like, he comes out dressed like Jim Morrison, basically. Like, he's got tight brown pants, uh, like a vest, and kind of like some frilly shirt underneath, like, with with some flared sleeves, very late 60s, early 70s. Tame for Bowie. But from 69 through 72, by 72, you have him in the jumps, in the skin-tight jumpsuits, covered with stars and the bright red dyed hair the deep makeup those super androgynous look in in the course of three years he just completely reinvented anything that anyone might have expected of him because space oddity is kind of a weird song eh, more or less but maybe not musically like it's here's the thing you're only a few years removed from you know, the weirdest parts of the beat. This is the same time that the Beatles are kind of get finishing up and they're doing some of their weirder stuff. You know, this is past Sgt. Pepper's. This is past Bob Dylan's kind of funky storytelling phases. And if you look at it in that context, I mean, it's not completely out of left field. It's a little strange. But compare that to Ziggy and you have a what seems like a completely different artist. Absolutely. I mean, it helped that it was the 70s. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, that was a that was the the counterculture and the hippie movement 
was now old enough to influence how market decisions were made and and how uh, you know art was defined and and fashion and all of that. But really, I mean, Bowie broke the mold and was doing things that. I mean, you could you could make an argument that Alice Cooper started doing the same thing over in America around the same time with a heavier edge, but the the theatricality and the the androgynous space god persona that Bowie adopted for himself was truly unique. Uh, one of the interesting things about Bowie's early career is he would influence his own act with theater and he would make characters for himself and we get storyteller and a story writer and uh, I decided that I preferred to enact a lot of the material I was writing rather than perform it as myself at this moment Major Tom is is pseudo arguably the first one and the character of Major Tom comes up uh, throughout Bowie's entire discography being referenced in songs, but the real first character that David Bowie became was the iconic Ziggy Stardust. And that I want to say was for his fourth album? I believe so, yes. Yeah, the fourth album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which is a concept album, and I love it for that because I love concept albums. They're going to be on this list sooner or later. Um, and that's where a lot of Bowie's first true super hits came from. You know, anybody who's watched Guardians of the Galaxy knows Moon Age Daydream. And you've got the songs that you started. You've got Starman. I can remember you teaching uh, a friend of ours in high school, Starman, before, uh, before school would actually start on the guitar. A good song. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Straight up. Yeah. Um and he blew the hell up and and instantly was this just magnificent androgynous. It's it's funny. He actually identified as gay uh, on public TV in 1972, the same time he started being Ziggy. This 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 crazy beautiful gay space god who is gracing stages. And this is when he started doing world tours. This is when he started really becoming super famous. And Ziggy became so popular. I think this was always Bowie's intent, but I I haven't seen anything one way or the other. Um, He publicly killed the character during one performance and gave Ziggy a death and a funeral. And at that point, Ziggy's gone and we're back to being David Bowie. And it's fascinating. He would do the same thing with his next album. Um, It's a lot less well-known, but the album Aladdin Sane is actually supposed to be Bowie's next character. And it is actually iconic. The the cover of Aladdin Sane is the picture of Bowie with the red and blue lightning bolt makeup over his eye. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people can visually identify with that. Aladdin Sane was supposed to be another character. And Aladdin Sane, uh, interestingly, was supposed to be like his manifestation that Ziggy was corrupted by fame. He's gone on record and uh, as saying that Aladdin Sane is supposed to be the corrupted version of Ziggy Stardust. 
And mm-hmm. it's interesting, just the, the evolution of the character, for me at least. And this trend would continue. Bowie would move to L.A. in the mid-70s, and he started up his next character, the Thin White Duke. And this is what you alluded to earlier. You want to talk about the Thin White Duke. I do want to talk about the Thin White Duke. So, um, for context, uh, just to fill in a couple of things, uh, between kind of this ending of Ziggy Stardust segment, um, Bowie does a couple of projects that are commercially very, very successful and and honestly come out to some of his better-known songs. My favorite David Bowie song uh, is Rebel Rebel. Huh, uh, and that's okay. off the Diamond Dogs. Yep, that's off the Diamond Dogs album, uh, 1974, which is a great album. It's fairly straightforward, like rock and roll, soul, funk kind of deal. It's it's it's, it's interesting in that regard. But um, and then from there you get to uh, I think it's Young Americans. That's right. And there he's just doing Blue Eyed Soul. Like that is just straight. Like he gets on Soul Train and does a couple songs from that album, if I remember correctly. He called it plastic soul like that was his term for it because he at least had the humility to be like i (laughs) am a guy from brixton england i am not properly doing you know actual funk and soul music but these this is what i'm listening to at the time um which by the way i just love that he you know melded with the genres in such a way yeah um he comes out with fame at this time which is a song co-written with john lennon uh and that's and that's I don't think it's one of his best songs, but it's definitely a very interesting song. It goes on the greatest uh, hits album for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's good, it's great. Um and then 76 is where we get uh well, I think I think the Thin White Duke character, the early stuff kind of is the groundwork is there on Young Americans. 76 is Station to Station, the title song of which is the formal introduction of the Thin White Duke. Throwing darts in lovers' eyes, yeah. So, do you want to do you want to lay the prosecution, or do you want me to levy a defense first? Yeah, let me let, let me just explain the Thin White Duke in succinct terms. Keeping in mind the context at the time, David Bowie was living in Los Angeles. Uh, he was subsisting on a diet of milk, peppers, and cocaine. He was highly isolated, uh, depressed, manic, dealing with the pressures of fame, pressures of his own stardom, trying to top himself. And the Thin White Duke was a character that came out of this period of time. He was also, at the time, uh, obsessed with the occult, uh, reading Aleister Crowley, playing with Black Candles, all the shit Geezer Butler was doing in Black Sabbath five years earlier. And this is the big part. He was becoming really interested in fascistic, far-right ideologies. This is about the time where he has an incident where he is stopped at an airport and it's discovered that he has multiple bits of Nazi paraphernalia in his luggage. He is photographed in what he claims was mid-wave, but at the time of the photograph, it appeared that he was doing a Nazi salute. He went on, during this time period of the Thin White Duke, in arguably in character, he would make comments calling Hitler the first rock star and saying Britain and the United States would benefit from a far-right leader, something, something akin to more of a monarchic presence and that it would 
you know, cleanse the country, quote unquote. He would later go on to renounce all of this, but that's, it, it remains for me one of the hardest things to square with David Bowie is the period as the thin white dude, because he uses fascistic imagery in the song in a lot of the songs on station to station it's it's a really problematic time period for him so andy a lot of what a lot of what precipitated some of this discussion was me asking you how do you as a david bowie super fan square the whole of the thin white duke so that's kind of my short version and that is the short version i welcome your rebuttal yeah and i want to go ahead and start on the record uh, for saying I will not excuse David Bowie for the pro-Nazi stuff. We are very clear in our fuck Nazi mentality here on love-hate relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like especially in 2018 uh, in America, it is it is important to say over and over again so nobody gets it confused. Fuck Nazis. I I will not excuse David Bowie for this, but I will offer my take based on research I had done to explain what was going on here in, in my viewpoint. So we've mentioned that Bowie had moved to L.A., and you, you did a real good job laying out his situation there. The man was doing Sam Kinison levels of cocaine. <laughs> not eating a lot, not having any meaningful interaction. He was on the peak of the the wave. You know, he, he had become a rock and roll god and was one of the most famous people um, in the world at that point. And it absolutely got to his head. One of the things you didn't mention is... Uh, he was on a talk show for London Weekend Television, and in the middle of the interview, Spanish General Francisco Franco died, and the producers wanted to cut the interview and go to the footage of the funeral in Spain, and Bowie had a very diva-esque freakout and refused to stop being the center of attention for that moment. The man was definitely strung out to say the least he was enthralled in the drug culture and i think the thin white duke is a culmination of the shit ton of drugs he was doing and the depression and narcissistic viewpoints that bowie was engaging in at the time he showed himself to be a musical chameleon and to dive deep into these characters back when he was ziggy stardust he was ziggy stardust and david bowie didn't do the tour it was ziggy and the spiders doing the tour and the thin white duke was just another character he is quoted bowie is quoted as calling the thin white duke a sardonic fascist you know monster of a man and I think between all the cocaine and this need to continue the artistry, he totally lost himself in a character that was admittedly a a sociopath and a monster. So I can't excuse what Bowie said, but I think I understand how he allowed himself to get into a place 
to do this. And I mean, we've seen this with other people in the past, you know, Heath Ledger famously, when he, uh, he prepared for the role of the Joker, he locked himself in a hotel for a month and studied the role. And it, you know, it's reported in interviews that he was never the same again before his unfortunate death. I think this is a little bit of the same thing for Bowie. And I wanted to provide more of a defense because I was left with this question of, okay, so the Thin White Duke is a character and a fascist character at that. Where did this fascist Nazi appreciation come from in the first place? And I think I I can offer something that should come across as a good defense. There is a ton of evidence to support that David Bowie was a huge fan of German Expressionism. Uh, both in his music, his musical style, and in his visual representation. We're going to get into it, but the thing that Bowie did to kind of break off from all this bullshit and reinvent himself was he moved to Switzerland and later West Berlin and kind of cleansed himself that way. But I think that a coked-up David Bowie probably blurred the lines between admiring early early 20th century German art with admiring early 20th century Germany as a whole and all of the fascist problematic parts of Germany that came with it. But mm. I think that you can look at what Bowie did throughout his life and I think there's enough evidence to show that this was a mistake and that this was not an accurate representation of David Bowie. I don't think you can have an alleged relationship with Mick Jagger and be a fascist. I don't think you can... (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think you can marry a a black woman. Uh, his, His wife... Iman is a Somali model. I don't think you can marry an African-American woman, or not African-American, an African woman, and be sitting here talking about the purity of the master race and all that. And Mm -hmm. the last thing I'll say is Bowie was often trying to do satire and critique culture as he saw it, and it very rarely actually came across you know, before he did Station to Station, he did Young Americans. And if you look at the lyrics of Young Americans, they're actually very sarcastic and, again, sardonic. And it's it's a happy, peppy song, but he's actually singing about, you know, some awful critiques of America. And, again, to pull from a Bowie interview... Uh, the song China Girl, which... Which is a little problematic as well. Which is very problematic as well. For those of you that don't know, China Girl comes across as a very Asian, fetishizing uh, piece of pop drab. What it was supposed to be was Bowie's critique of American foreign policy in Vietnam. And I'm using his own words there. And he, he stated that he was trying to mix a metaphor for loving an Asian girl with what the American forces did in Vietnam, and he really didn't do a good job clarifying that at all. So, fuck Nazis. 
it's it's real unfortunate that Bowie lost himself, and I do think he lost himself for a period of time and pulled all that shit, but I don't think that's the real David Bowie. I think he got lost in the role, as it were, which is de- is debatably inexcusable in and of itself, but for the reasons I've listed, that's why I can acknowledge the Thin White Duke and still be a David Bowie superfan. Fair. Um, okay. I I like your answer. It's... I will leave it up to any individual to make their own distinctions about what to do with a moment like that. Um, for me, I'm comforted by the fact that David Bowie honestly and earnestly spent the rest of his career not only denouncing that character and that period of his life, uh, but also very actively championing progressive causes, actively donating his time and his money and his voice to anti-racist, anti-fascist causes. Uh, and I think that there is room for... Okay, let's be fair. He was 28. Eight, I want to say. At the most, yeah. When Station to Station came out, you know, that's he's a year younger than I am right now. I don't want to be judged based on old opinions I had a number of years ago. Should he have known better at the time? Yeah, probably. But the fact that he learned from it, I'm, I'm. <laughs> Funny enough, uh, I hope this is the only time I make this reference. But I compare something like this moment in David Bowie's career to Mark Wahlberg. Hmm. <laughs> Namely. Okay. No, I have a point here. It's funny. Yes, I know. But I have a point. You know, Mark Wahlberg, uh, on record, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of public record that Mark Wahlberg committed a hate crime. Mark Wahlberg viciously assaulted a man of Asian descent for his race. Not only beat him savagely, but used multiple ethnic slurs against him. Mm. And as far as I know, Mark Wahlberg has never sufficiently addressed that publicly. You know, uh, as far he, I think he might have made some statement at some point where he said like this, it was an indiscretion of his youth, but he never sufficiently tried to make amends about it. He never put it in any particular context. He just kind of let it fall by the wayside as, you know, an, a minor event of his past. And David Bowie didn't do that. David Bowie addressed it. David Bowie addressed it repeatedly. He worked actively against kind of a lot of what he had done there. And I think that that is, in terms of sheer comparison, you know, I think that that is much more worthy. And I'm a bigger David Bowie fan than I am a Mark Wahlberg fan for more reasons than just that. But I feel like we give a lot of passes, and here's one where I'm willing to be okay with David Bowie. Again, I'm a fan of his despite this. I find that period of his career very problematic, but I'm better with it. Sure. Than I am with some other similar instances. And that's my personal decision there. I'm not mad at anyone who decides Thin White Duke is a line in the sand and I can't listen to David Bowie. I'm not mad about that. I... Don't personally agree, but I wouldn't try to talk anyone out of that opinion. But I do think that it's a worthwhile discussion and something worth mentioning here in our, you know, even though this is a love fest for David Bowie, I think that's worth talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always important. Examine your heroes. No matter who they are, examine your heroes. Make sure that 
you can a, a be aware of what they may have done in the past and b decide if you can defend it you know i i don't i don't have any quarrel with anyone who cannot be a david bowie fan because of the thin white duke you know uh, personally i cannot be a johnny depp fan because he's a fucking wife beater and so i completely get it and i will not uh quarrel with anyone who disagrees with bowie as an artist yeah and i mean and and this isn't the only time david bowie's ever been problematic i mean let's be fair in the 70s and 80s um it's again on record david bowie slept with a few minors um some teenage girls and i know there was at least one of them god who was it I think it was Laurie Maddox. Um, it was a writer. That sounds right. Uh, yeah. pu- published uh, an article a number of years ago titled I Lost My Virginity to David Bowie. Just talking about how in the 70s when she was, I think, 16 or... No, she was 15. She was a groupie with multiple rock stars, including Jimmy Page, David Bowie, and Mick Jagger. And that's that's there uh you can look at that in the context of its time period there were other rock stars doing it so on and so forth i choose not to excuse that but you know you gotta put the stuff you gotta make your own lines in the sand yeah. and i'm not okay with ignoring that in any no not at all any of this stuff so yeah so I appreciate you uh, being willing to tackle that particular topic because i was not going to do a david bowie episode without talking about the thin white duke no, no, it's fair enough, man. It, it, like I said, examine your heroes, and it it bears comment and it bears criticism. You know, the man was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I, I appreciate your other point that, at the very least, he did do he he did seem to spend the rest of his career trying to undo these mistakes as as much as he possibly could yeah so speaking of the rest of dave bowie's career uh just to go through <laughs> a few more highlights hey i gotta i gotta get us back on track somehow <laughs> now i get you i get you there's a lot of bio so it may help to kind of speed through that and then we can get back into our deeper discussions sure sure so as i had touched on after station to station and really I don't know if there was any one particular breakdown or or something, but somehow there was a wake-up call for David Bowie. He moved to Switzerland uh, for a while, where that's where he actually wrote Under Pressure with Freddie Mercury. He stopped doing as much coke. It was still the 80s, so he still did a little bit of coke. Wrote Under Pressure with Freddie Mercury, and then moved to West Berlin and produced what is known as the Berlin Trilogy with Brian Eno. And these were three uh, critical hit albums that really served to reinvent David Bowie and really served to help out his career and help him reestablish himself. Um, And a fun fact about the Berlin era of David Bowie, I I keep saying West Berlin because the Berlin Wall was still up. It was still a thing. And Bowie at one point held a concert in West Berlin, but held it close enough to the wall that thousands of people in East Berlin, uh, you know, crowded to get as close and, and listen and, and see whatever they could see as possible. 
uh, later that same night, riots broke out in East Berlin. And, you know, four years later, the Berlin Wall goes down. Um, when David Bowie passed in 2016, the German Foreign Office uh, sent out a public statement thanking David Bowie for what they saw as his aid in helping bring down the Berlin Wall. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, and yet David Hasselhoff can't get a break <laughs> and can't get any acknowledgement <laughs> well, for his role. The Hoff is still alive, so we'll have to wait and see what the German Foreign Office uh, puts out on, on the day he passes. <laughs> so, Dad, you need to promise me you're not going to get alcohol tonight, okay? What? You need to promise me you're not going to get alcohol tonight. Uh, moving on. Um, one thing I wanted to mention uh, from around this time, it's funny because this um, is one more bullet point towards the Thin White Duke situation, but also ties into the Berlin era. This was something I definitely made a point that I wanted to mention because it's another one of those stories of Bowie just kind of being a dick, uh, which I love. Tony DeFries is a... Uh, how do I put this? A monstrous ogre pig of a human being. <laughs> he was Bowie's manager from 69 to 75. Seriously, look, up, look the man up. He is, he is awful. Um, there's, there's a lot of history there uh, with him kind of screwing over artists. But um, one, one interesting thing is that in that period of time that he was Bowie's manager, uh, he was receiving a really lucrative amount of Bowie's take uh, and everything Bowie made. Part of the reason why Bowie was in such rough shape when he moved to L.A. was because DeFreeze was taking so much of his money. Um, and there are comments from his friends at the time making statements that he was more or less living like a pauper at the time. Uh, granted, he, was, he had enough money to buy ridiculous amounts of cocaine and an apartment in L.A., but... That doesn't change the fact that he was not living on a whole... He was not living on everything he was making at the time. So Bowie fired him in 75, but because of the contract that DeFreeze had with him, he kept receiving 50% of Bowie's royalties until 82. So apart from just how shitty everything was with Station to Station, there is an argument to be had that uh, the Berlin Trilogy, while critically acclaimed, is some of the most experimental, non-commercial for the period music of David Bowie's career at the time. I don't know. Would you agree with that? I would agree. You know, it's funny looking back on it now, it's very critically acclaimed and actually probably one of my two top favorite David Bowie songs is ashes to ashes came off of, I want to say the heroes album. Uh, but no, you're I on think the mark. So. Yeah. So, um, so this is the period of time. And while David Bowie's waiting for his c contract with DeFreeze to expire, uh, I think it's in 82, uh, he did Under Pressure. David Bowie actually relinquished all of his royalties for Under Pressure to Queen, specifically to screw over his manager to make sure he didn't get a cent of it. Like, I love that shit. Um, that, was, that was 81 or 82. Um, so in 82, I think at the end of 82, uh, DeFreeze's contract expires. The next year, 83, David Bowie reaches his commercial peak his absolute sales peak of his career right. with Let's Dance in 83. And it is the biggest middle finger to an ogre I've ever seen. <laughs> and I love that David Bowie kind of spent 
you know, roughly seven years of his career creating out of spite against his manager, that just makes me happy in my soul. So I wanted to share that that with you. Spite, the noblest of gold. I'd like to return this jacket. Certainly. May I ask why? For spite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I mean, DeFreeze hated Bowie's music at the time. Like he's he's he called Low a piece of crap. Like that was, I think, the third album of the Berlin trilogy. Um, and he famously just went on record saying how much he hated the album, and he was really upset at how non-commercial all of this was. Because that was money out of his pocket, because he was an asshole. Right. <laughs> and it just it just makes me laugh. It just makes me laugh. I just love it. No, it's great. It, it's, it, it's, there was a lot of that going around in, um, in early 70s, 80s england it seems like but in any case yeah no uh the berlin trilogy is is very highly looked on in hindsight the second album was heroes which is maybe bowie's most famous song it's up there um moulin rouge up there (laughs) (laughs) yes well but no the berlin trilogy was interesting it's it's not for everybody it was very this is where bowie's german influence really seeped in in an appropriate way i feel like it was very the 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 exact term is kraut rock and he was getting very he, he was getting very different with his music and musicianship and i i personally really like it um the album he came out with after the Berlin trilogy, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. That's the album that Ashes to Ashes is on, and that is a phenomenal album. Bowie would continue to. We're at like 1987-ish in the timeline, and Bowie would continue to make music steadily for about 20 years um, before taking mm-hmm. a 10-year hiatus. But for me personally, post uh, Scary Monsters is really where. I start to fall off, which is ironic because, as you said, "Let's Dance" became a massive hit, and this is this is the this is the David Bowie that is wearing a a yellow suit and running out on stage to a hundred thousand people. He's this is this is the height of Bowie's American fame, and it actually leaked into breaking away from music and getting into film acting as well as um, theater acting. But, you know, I want to talk about Bowie in movies for a little bit. I don't think talking about David Bowie would be complete unless we broke into his film work. You know, what would you say for the typical rock star? What 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 constitutes a good amount of of film exposure? Like normally it's like a role. Like, you're in a role, yeah. and you're in a couple cameos as yourself in other things. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, let me think. What's what's kind of a... No, John Bon Jovi was in a couple of things here and there. Um, you get you get a lot of them cameoing as themselves. Every yeah. once in a while, you get, you know, Keith Richards in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, or Paul McCartney in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, or... Steven Tyler guesting as Santa Claus in an episode of Lizzie McGuire. <laughs> right. And then at the end, he comes back as himself, and everyone just kind of accepts it as given. 
even though that's lunacy. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, but but in fairness, Bowie... Oh, I'm watching Gilmore Girls right now, and Sebastian Bach has a recurring role on it, which is fucking hilarious. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, like, it's, it tends to be kind of either... Either they appear as themselves, uh, which does happen pretty frequently, or they, yeah, they have some kind of weird, like, bit part thing. Very rarely are, very rarely do you get rock stars giving important performances in movies. I agree. Uh, Yeah. And to talk about David Bowie's acting career, I mean... It's funny because I can only think of one of one movie he's been in that did particularly well financially. Most of the rest of them were fine. Like <laughs> they're good performances and arguably good movies, but they don't necessarily do that well. Sure. I'm thinking specifically of Labyrinth, which, if I remember correctly, was a box office bomb. Oh, big time! Is officially a cult movie. Like that thing is iconic for a lot of people. Yeah, that was actually my very first exposure to David Bowie as Jareth the Goblin. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah, and he fucking terrified me uh, with all his little goblin monsters. And I'm I'm sitting there being three years old, having no concept that this is not supposed to be just pants-shittingly scary. (laughs) So the labyrinth's a piece of cake, is it? Well, let's see how you deal with this little slice. See, I didn't watch Labyrinth until I was a teenager, so, and he, so by then I was like, I was already a David Bowie fan when I watched Labyrinth. Ah, no, that was the first thing I saw him in, to the point where, some point years later, he was on SNL, and I, I pointed at the screen and looked at my folks and went, it's the Goblin King, what's he doing there? Um, but... No, Bowie, in my opinion, has a more impressive film resume than your typical musician or uh, singer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are obviously people who have switched from singing to acting and, and made themselves into leading men. That was never Bowie. But if you look at... Fucking Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but... You look at what he he did, and and yeah, the one everyone thinks of is Labyrinth, which was almost an excuse just to get him to do some more crazy glam rock fantasy bullshit anyway. I will defend the Labyrinth soundtrack, it's amazing. But Labyrinth was a, a fun movie, and it's become a real cult classic, but I often look at the other stuff he did, um... I don't know if you probably know this, but I don't know if the the regular person does. Um, There was a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh, I know The Last Temptation of Christ. Right. I want to say it was... um, uh, Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, I was blanking on Scorsese. Uh, Scorsese, 1988. um, Also did not do great at the box office. It did not. But I want to touch on... But critically acclaimed and a great movie. Oh, absolutely. And I want to touch on the fact David Bowie played Pontius Pilate. And it was very much not a, oh my God, look, it's David Bowie. It was just, it's a very, very subtle, very demure, very, hey, I'm trying to be serious take on the role. And I really respect that. Bowie is also, uh, all the way back in 1970, he starred in another cult movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is a a very bizarre, fun sci-fi movie. But again, it's not 
about oh my god hey look at me it, it's not kiss meets the phantom of the of the park it's it's actually him trying and then you've got uh yeah. you know he 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 would fall into the cameo roles again the one that comes to mind is when he is the uh face-off judge in zoolander all right who's gonna call this sucker if nobody has any objection i believe i might be of service um, <laughs> but 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 then uh, one of Bowie's final film roles, he's fucking Nikolai Tesla in The Prestige. He is, and that that I still point to. Like I remember seeing The Prestige in theaters and watching the credits because I did not realize that was Bowie until I watched the credits, and I was like, "Wait a fucking minute, David Bowie is Nikola Tesla in this movie? Are you shitting me? <laughs> Are you shitting me?" And I rewatched that movie like the moment it came out on like streaming i watched it immediately just to watch david bowie because i was like i i i you unless you told me it was bowie i would not have even thought of right (laughs) i want to ask you i want to ask you um did you see blade runner 2049 i did remember the villain in there the jared leto character i didn't the director of that movie had originally planned to cast bowie but bowie died before he could before he could do it. Oh, insane, blind David Bowie cutting open a what what looks to be a human woman's womb and pulling out the the replicant fetus. Yeah, yeah, I could have gotten to that. <laughs> I just any excuse to take work away from J, from Jared Leto, I'm down for. And if the excuse is to give it to David Bowie, I mean. There you go. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll point the finger back at you. Uh, David Bowie was going to be Hades in the Disney Hercules, but they gave it to James Caan Woods. But yeah, <laughs> Woods. Sorry, I I mixed up my annoyingly right wing Jameses. Ooh, a piece of candy. Ooh, a piece of candy. Ooh, a piece of candy. Oh, he is, isn't he? Oh. Yeah, yeah, he is. But uh, I like. I like James Woods as Hades more than I want to, but like, huh, there would have been a take. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was they were going to give Hades actual songs and it was going to be Bowie. Uh, and then they they wrote out all of Hades' songs and decided to take him in a less sinister, more comic direction. But what are you going to do? Bowie, I mean, Bowie was a very good actor. He wasn't in a mm-hmm. lot, but most of the stuff he was in, he did a very good job in. And I, I don't feel like he ever really cashed out on just, hey, I'm Bowie, and look at me, ha ha ha. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. He he took it seriously. He studied it. He trained in it. Um, you know, obviously, obviously he's not, he didn't train in it in the same way that, like, he didn't go to film school. He didn't go to theater school. But he did train in this stuff. He did take the classes. And he took it all very, very seriously. He wanted to act and act well. It's Pop's funkiest 50-year-old for you, David Bowie. And I warn you, in this clip, he's acting. Yeah. It, it goes back to when we when we started this bio of the man. He had his finger in every different form of artistic expression. 
know, he, he had a prolific music career. He had a very rock solid acting career. Uh, he, for a good part of the early two thousands was just an art collector. You know, his, his, his second wife was a fashion icon and Bowie became one as well, both as, you know, the model back when he was Ziggy Stardust and then as a fashion producer. Um, the man was very artistic in every single way, in ways that other people who are famous for one form of expression often aren't. Yeah. But at the end, he was a musician and a singer. And so let's, uh, let's, let's bring this into the tail end. Um, in 2006, 13 in 2013, Bowie came back from a 10 year recording hiatus and he came out with, uh, two more albums before his death in 2013. He had the next day, which is a, a, a fine album. It's, it's very, my heyday was 25 years ago, but it's got some songs on there that are, that are good and, and solid. And then in 2016, released Jan- on his birthday, which was also two days before his death, uh, David Bowie's final album, Black Star, came out. Which is a great album. Black Star is amazing. I, I cannot say it enough. Black Star is different and beautiful and haunting. Um, the, the title track off of it, as well as the first single, a song called Lazarus, very heavily showed that Bowie knew he was dying. He was, he was battling liver cancer this entire time and no one really knew about it, but it, it showed that he knew he was going. It, it, it was Bowie dealing with his own death and saying goodbye in a way that is haunting and beautiful. And I'll tell you, if you haven't seen it, um, the music video for Lazarus is chilling and beautiful and scary and, and excellent. And anyone who wants to appreciate Bowie at the end I think that's how you do it. Yeah. So, following David Bowie's death, um, I guess the thing that I linger on is his influence, his importance, a lot of what he did following or, or previous to his death that kind of lingers and sticks with me. Um, I think very particularly about the fact that, you know, in his later years... He was always, always, always a champion for newer artists. Yeah. In the heyday of the 90s, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, he was a vocal proponent of newer music. He did not feel the need to stick himself back in his old categories. You know, he loved Nine Inch Nails and was a big supporter of Trent Reznor very early on. Uh, he actively uh, supported Alicia Keys and performed with her on several occasions. Something that I think is wonderful is while he, he outwardly stated that while working on those last couple of albums, uh, there was a period of time where he listened to nothing but Kendrick Lamar. Huh. He took he was a huge hip hop fan. He was a huge R and B fan. He as someone who personally me, I 
am very much a fan of multiple genres of music, wide and disparately. You know, I listen to country. I listen to jazz. I listen to hip-hop new and old. I listen to classic rock, glam rock, metal of all stripes. Uh, I listen to music in other languages, uh, not just, you know, my parents' uh, traditional Colombian music, but also, you know, Brazilian music. I listen to... um, I've recently gotten into some K-pop and some uh, Chinese hip-hop. Nice. I... I am a very big fan of casting a very wide net musically, and I love that David Bowie did that. He he not only did it, but he also talked up these artists, and that was extremely important. Something a lot of people may not know about him, David Bowie indirectly was responsible for British punk rock, in, it, arguably. I can see it, but go on. Okay, so um, very, very notably, he was a huge influence on... Okay, so punk rock starts off in 77 uh, with the CBGB's crowd. You've got the Ramones, you've got Blondie, you've got Television, you've got the Talking Heads, you've got all these uh, groups that would later go on to be huge influences to punk rock in general as it would delve further deep underground and become many things. Uh, British punk rock arguably started by taking a lot of those early influences and then you get the Sex Pistols. Uh, the Sex Pistols were 100% a manufactured band. Uh, they were, it was Malcolm McLaren, uh, who was the manager, putting together basically a pop act that of people he knew would be fashionable, but they were shitty musicians. <laughs> uh, he, he admitted that. He's like, they sounded dreadful, but they looked good. Uh, and he, he formulated the Sex Pistols. Now, they did write their own songs. Uh, and Johnny Rotten, the lead singer, uh, was a huge... His biggest influences were David Bowie and Alice Cooper. And he he, is open, he openly talks about how big of a David Bowie fan he was. So that's the first way that David Bowie was indirectly responsible for British punk rock. The second way is that the Sex Pistols got their equipment because Steve Jones, their guitarist was a voracious kleptomaniac. (laughs) And during the Ziggy Stardust tour, Steve Jones went behind, went backstage of the Hammersmith Odeon and stole all of the equipment he could. He stole Marshall amps. He stole Gibson guitars. (laughs) He stole their drum kits. He stole the PA system. He stole everything he possibly could, and that was the equipment on which, with, with which the Sex Pistols recorded Nevermind the Bullocks and did their early tours, including the shows that would eventually spawn off the rest of the British punk rock scene, including The Clash, Generation X, Susie Sue and the Banshees, all of these bands that were way more important and musically good than the Sex Pistols. <laughs> Happened because Steve Jones stole David Bowie's equipment. That sounds like the Sex Pistols to me. That's awesome. I it's, love that. It absolutely, it absolutely is. But but that's the kind of thing. Like you talked earlier on, early on about David Bowie pretty much inventing glam rock. You know, he had this rivalry with Mark Bolin of T Rex at the time. Um, I would argue the two of them probably kind of created glam rock in sort of a simultaneous manner. Um, it's kind of that chicken and egg thing. 
you know, did Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or Blue Cheer or or um, Iron Butterfly create heavy metal? Uh, it's probably Black Sabbath, but it's probably a combination of all of them. Who created glam rock? Probably David Bowie, though probably some contributions from a few other groups. Sure. But, but I think about this kind of legacy and influence, and I think about the fact that, you know, David Bowie was important to... 90s industrial metal he was important to mtv um blue-eyed soul music he was important to the punk rock scene in britain he was essential to soul he was essential to british new wave yeah inarguably he is he is like depeche mode talks about bowie he he you know the talking heads talk about bowie I, I I sit here and I try and think of a band, you know, post-late 70s who doesn't mention David Bowie at, or, as an influence, especially those that come in from that new wave background. Like, they don't <clears throat> exist. David Bowie is so important to what music became in, you know, the last quarter of the 20th century and beyond. Absolutely. And that's what I point to. That's what I point to following his death. It's... I love his music. I love what he represented. Um, he takes he takes a lot of that same spot that Prince kind of does for me. He was a weird kid, you know. When when he died, just like when Prince died, it's like speaking as kind of the young music obsessed, kind of queer little dude who took his refuge in other weird kind of queer strange but good music you know david bowie was essential to that for me no i absolutely agree and that's that's a huge part of it for me bowie probably wasn't the best voice of his era easily not easily not but you look at the man's influence as late as 2016 rolling stone named him the greatest rock star of all time and the only issue i really take with that is david bowie was so much more than a rock star david bowie's music had become so much more than rock and roll you know it became new wave and pop and 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 even even his last stuff in black star it's it's very experimental techno based it's the the man just would do something and excel at it. When Bowie died, that was a that was a day that I like didn't work. That was that was the day I I took off work and just listened to Bowie for the rest of the the the, the evening. And I can't think of anyone else that holds such an esteem for me that I would do that with the exception of Patrick Stewart. <laughs> when Patrick Stewart goes, I, 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 I'm going to be useless. So I hope it's no time soon. Ah, so it works like the holodeck. The what now? From Star Trek. Some of us spent the late 80s and early 90s getting laid, Smith. Um, but no, Bowie was just just so amazing. I, I, I personally always held such a connection with him. Um, we have the same birthday. I also have the same birthday as Elvis Presley, but but 
for some reason, I never focused on that second fact. It's I had the same birthday as David Bowie. I, I, I learned that at a young age, and it always drew me to the man, this, this chameleon of music and artistic expression who just did so much phenomenal stuff. You know, I was I was sitting here because I, I want to end by asking you what your favorite Bowie song was. I I was sitting here driving home from work playing the hits, and I I thought I had my answer, and then I'm sitting there being like, oh oh, but there's changes. Oh oh, but there's Suffragette City. Oh oh, this is a lot harder than I thought. And I just I I I absolutely love the man i i am an unabashed bowie fan uh i'm i'm only ashamed that i don't have a tattoo of him yet (laughs) but uh anyway let's let's end this off and i want to ask you if you can if you can pick one uh what your favorite bowie song was so my favorite bowie song and i said this earlier uh for me personally you that's right you did it's rebel rebel uh, which is a song that, like, I have had writing sessions where I have straight up put Rebel Rebel on repeat and just looped it for several hours just listening to that guitar riff, to that vocal. It's a very, it's one of the more repetitive Bowie songs, but I, I don't know. It has always stuck out to me as being absolutely incredible it's it's a song for the outcasts like you were saying it's it, yeah. it's a song for for the person whose parents can't even tell what what gender they're trying to visually identify as that's that's the song yeah now um i will also state that some time ago god what was it I'm pulling it up right now, but I put up a thing on Facebook a while back that was like, ask me my top five anything. And I have, I have a dear friend who is also a huge Bowie fan, and she asked me what my top five uh, Bowie songs were. And I'm pulling it up now. What was my reply to her? Okay, yeah. So, oh, actually, I did not put, I did not put Rebel Rebel at the top. I said uh, number one was under pressure specifically the performance from uh the freddie mercury tribute concert after his death where annie lennox performed freddie's part annie lennox of the eurythmics so that was my number one number two was rebel rebel number three i said starman number four was tonight which is his duet with tina turner which is incredible it is fucking incredible (laughs) um and i love tina turner like any of you who have never listened deeply into Tina Turner, or you only know the one or two songs, listen to Tina Turner's back catalog. She's incredible. And then number five, I put Black Star. Sure. So that was... Now, granted, that was my list, um, like, two months ago. Ask me again, you know, next week. I might change that up. But, um, yeah, that's that's where I am. Well, thank you for giving five, because that means I can give five now. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, no. By the way, I will also say, you mentioned Ashes to Ashes. That is one of my least favorite Bowie singles. Really? Personally. Really. Like, I do not love that song the way... I know some people who love that song. I do not love that song. It is musically very uninteresting to me. Okay. But, 
Please continue. Well, in no particular order, um, except for Ashes to Ashes is like number two. <laughs> no, my my favorite Bowie songs um, in no particular order. I love Changes. I think that's great song. That's one of the absolute like like Changes and Heroes in my opinion, probably deserve to be the two songs Bowie is most known for. Um, but I love Changes. I love Suffragette City. Great song. I love Queen Bitch. I mentioned it before. Queen Bitch is my definitive David Bowie rock star song. And I I, I am a filmmaker, and... and my, on my filmmaking bucket list near the top is to use the opening guitar riffs from Queen Bitch as like a, a, a Wes Anderson-esque title card. I, I, I don't know. I just, I love that song. It's so good. Ashes to Ashes, I find such a beautiful song. I, I, I mentioned way back when when we originally talked about Bowie all those episodes ago, like like Ashes to Ashes will bring tears to my eyes on the right day. And then to round out the list, um, I don't think you can go wrong by saying Moon Age Daydream, a crazy, funky space battle mashup pop jam. So... So those are mine. Um, I, I go back and forth between Queen Bitch and Ashes to Ashes. I love those songs so much. And I will say, Hunky Dory, which is David <laughs> Bowie's third album, it's got Changes, it's got Oh You Pretty Things, and it's got Queen Bitch. It is a fucking jam of an album. I love it. I suggest, if, you're, if, if, you're, if you want to listen to a Bowie album... Uh, hunky dory you could do a lot worse than that and i recommend diamond dogs which is probably my favorite oh diamond dogs shit okay that's the one with rebel rebel on it 74 that's true okay scratch moon age daydream put in diamond dogs see this is hard for me <laughs> <laughs> well thank i think i think the entire i think all of bowie's stuff is on spotify it is. i'm pretty sure it is. so so yeah um yeah i think that's a good place to close it yeah so yeah. All right. Well, um, guys, this has been, you know, a full triple love special with just the two of us on David Bowie. And we still managed to get damn near an hour and a half because we spent the first like 10 minutes talking about Pokemon. But, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? It's a very this is it's a very uh, reflective of us uh, showing. We cut nothing. Life. We cut nothing. <laughs> No, I, I want to thank you, my friend, for uh, for for going on this debate with me and allowing me to defend the man in the places where he needed defending and gush over him in uh, all the rest of the time. So I, uh, I very much enjoyed absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you want to go ahead and take us out, Andy? Yeah. So this time we didn't have a question because we didn't have time for one, but... This is love-hate relationship, and we do take relationship questions. If you have a relationship question uh, about anything, about a relationship with a family member, a pet, a, a scorned lover, um, a 
or even, or even someone that you're a fan of have never met, but you have a relationship to their artistic work. Exactly. Uh, you can go ahead and send those questions to us um, at lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, sorry that we just subjected you to an entire David Bowie episode, but you choose to listen to us, um, and I love you for it. I can always count on, I can always count on your stream. Um, you can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. You can follow me currently on Twitter at Jovocop2113. Who knows? In the near future, I might come up with some Bowie-related pun to be my new uh, my new handle. But for now, that's J-O-V-O-C-O-P and the number is 2113. It's just a terrible handle, Andy. <laughs> uh, and I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z, and that does have two underscores, which also makes it a shitty handle. Uh, that's on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, thank you all for listening. Absolutely. We appreciate our fans so much. Um, and as always, all of you, please uh, don't tell your friends about us, but please tell your enemies. <laughs>